right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How's everybody doing tonight? You doing all right? Whoa. Hang on. Let's do that again, but I want everybody to match that level of energy. How are you guys doing tonight? Come on. Awesome. Great. Well then, please join me in welcoming to stage this evening's guest moderator, comedian Tom Papa, and of course, Chef Mario Batali. Hello, everybody. You look nice, Mario. You look handsome, Tom. I was really wondering if you were going to be in shorts tonight. I was wondering about it earlier, but we have a rule at my house that for the children, below 45 degrees means long pants. For me, it's below 35. I just made the cutoff. That's funny. Your kids also wear the shorts? As much as they can. Do they do, they do the Crocs, too? Often. Do they really? You're like a little... They're not like little mini-me's, no, though, but they're no? much cooler than I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Well, we're here to talk about this, this uh, great new book of yours. Um, well, you want to tell us why you decided to go this way with this book? It's Simple Family Meals. Um, I think what's the fundamental missing link in a world of highly uh, interconnected people following each other on Twitter and Facebook and texting and emailing and all the other things, I still don't know what they are. Okay. Uh, I think what's happened to the meal phase or the meal time during the night, which is, or during the day or whenever it can happen, is that it's slightly fallen apart and gone by the wayside. And what we're losing in that is the kind of the character and strength and confidence building in our children, knowing that there's somewhere that they can go every night where they can talk not only about the good things of the day, but maybe the bad things or the frightening things or the things that didn't quite go their way right. in a place that is comforting and, and the way that you can comfort them is also by the food, but also generally by the conversation. So this is a book about trying to convince people to get back to family meals. Uh, the way that I broke the recipes down is as opposed to uh, categories of antipasto and pasta and all that, I broke it down by the month. So you'll look at the month of January and I'm telling you, here's what I think you might want to shop for. Right. Uh, fundamentally, each chapter, and there's 12. Right. Commensurate with the months of the oh, year. Oh, yes. I get it. Um, has a big centerpiece main course. Okay. Uh, often meat, but not always. Sometimes poultry. No big main courses of fish in this book. Uh, and then in each chapter, there are three pasta courses, one soup course, five vegetable side dishes, or four sometimes, and one dessert. And that's how I think people should think about eating. Not necessarily all of those at once, but maybe have the big family meal with the main course and maybe a pasta and some side dishes, or right. maybe just a pasta and a side dish or a vegetable dish. Right. So understanding that the things change not necessarily seasonally by four seasons, but the way that we shop in the restaurants and in the savvy-savvy world of all the foodies that I know, we shop by the month and even sometimes there's things that only last two or three weeks, like ramps when they come into season in April. Right. Now, what, that's an interesting question because when I was looking through it and it was going month to month and... You often say in it that certain things are in seasons. You were saying there's certain types, but tomato was in season in May, I think it was, and that no. you should use that, or in, in June it was, or <laughs> I think it was October. Yeah, August, and, um, September, October. But it seems like when I go to the supermarket now, everything's always available. Which is exactly what they want you to think. Uh -huh. I'd like to point out some of the art direction here, though. At the beginning of each chapter, often enough, what they'll do is show you some big, glamorous picture of what it is. What we show in this, well a couple pages back, uh, the, the beginning of each chapter is actually what it looked like after having had that meal. 
So it's kind of an interesting and evocative idea that that's where you're headed. Right. Not necessarily just this beautiful looking pasta, but the understanding of it is that you'll have a meal, and more significantly, often at the end of the meal, people get up and go right back to work and plug their computers back in and pick up their tax machines. Right. In fact, what I like to kind of reinforce is that you sit there and don't clear the dishes immediately because you'll be surprised what kind of conversation unveils with your family if all of a sudden it's not back to work. It's just like, hey, everyone's just sitting here. There's dirty plates. No one's getting OCD on it or moving yeah. up on it. They're just letting it sit. Yeah, page And that's 30. kind of yeah, the that's, whole thing. That's, that's, that's the whole meal as you serve it. That's awesome. You know, you, Mario and I met, uh, I do this show on XM Radio, and we met at, right around Thanksgiving. Right. And you told me that about let the dishes sit for 15 minutes because I'm always concentrating just on making everything, and that's where all the work comes in. And then once you're done eating, I just, let's go. Let's, let's clear it, it and clean it up. Right. That 15 minutes is a long time. <laughs> right. But it's a, very, it's a really valuable time. The kids are less on edge. Everybody right. just kind of relaxes for a minute. Well, it's suddenly it seems like something's a little different. Right. And what that does is it just kind of relaxes people in a new way. For <clears throat> parents of, of children my age, who are 13 and 15, right. uh, you're basically at this point trying to trick them right. into relaxing and <laughs> divulging something that they're thinking about. <laughs> right. And that kind of sneaky way of just kind of uh, getting really close on that leg of lamb, it looks like. Is a good way to do it, too. But just the idea that the conversation and the food become a seamless expression of the family experience right. is what I'm trying to say. And, of course, the way to coax people back to the table, if it's hard to find people to get together at the same exact time, yeah. is at least once a week start to serve a particularly well-loved dish and right. serve it like whatever, Tuesday or whatever day, Sunday, whatever it happens to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, and make a special thing out of it. Right, exactly. Now, with, And the cool thing about it, too, is like this is your whole thing for... For the January meal, and you can do this all at once, but you could just pull out the pasta and just do that, or right, just do or, or a side dish and a salad and a pasta, or just right. two side dishes. I think a lot of the problem with America's uh, reliance on meat is that we eat meat uh, every day more than once or twice. Right. So the idea of having maybe a vegetable meal or a meal that isn't so reliant on protein heavy is kind of an exciting way for people to start to think about the potential for delicious food and and nourishment and 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 everything good about food, right. not just all of the, well, have you heard about this additive, or have you heard about cholesterol, or Paula Dean has right. you know, yeah, diabetes. diabetes and all these other things. There's yeah. a lot of bad words out there and a lot of bad buzz. If you eat well and eat healthily and think about it a little bit more, generally your, your health is going to go up both mentally and physically. Right. What I've noticed when I read, was reading in the book, you said that we were talking about frittatas, and you said that you, you love eggs, but you don't eat eggs for breakfast. Rarely do I eat eggs for breakfast. Why? Why you want... I don't, I'm not that big of a breakfast guy. Oh, really? I, you I, skip I, it? No, I don't. It's I, I try meal of the day. I know, I know. And then all those doctors, they're probably all right. <laughs> but I figure if, if, I, if I eat a big breakfast, I'm definitely hungry by 11.30. Right. <laughs> and then I'm probably hungry around 2.15. <laughs> then I'm hungry at 5. Right. If I just postpone it a little bit. I mean, I have my <laughs> breakfast, but honestly, I'd rather have cold Chinese food bathed in green Tabasco sauce than pancakes 99 days out of 100. <laughs> really? I just, uh, breakfast. But in yeah. Spain, eating eggs for lunch and dinner is very much part of their protocol. Right. So you'll sit down, you'll have these scrambled eggs or the eggs mixed up with potatoes or over easy duck eggs with toast. Like they're, they're that's right. part of the gig. So it's an interesting way to think about eggs. Oh, very interesting. Um, by the way, you know, I, the, I had this on my iPad at home and was just playing around with it. It's so incredibly easy to use. I mean, you can really, I mean, you know, and this is the perfect place to say it, books are so gross, aren't they? 
It really, you got to flip the pages and then you get your sauce on it. This is really pretty amazing. And the photography, it makes everything look so great. Like my kids, my kids with Brussels sprouts would have a problem with it. But you show them this picture and you're, it's like, how can you say no to trying to eat that? They won't. They won't say no. No, they won't. <laughs> See all those little cubes of cheese? How, how do you get kids to eat weird stuff? The way that we always got kids to eat weird stuff is we didn't announce it. We didn't make it an event. Uh-huh. We just passed it. Uh, like, oh, there's the duck testicles. Pass them over, honey. <laughs> oh, these are great, kids. Just kept passing them around. And they would never think, oh, the, the worst thing you can do is say, all right, tonight we're going to try something green. Uh, yeah, and exactly. you haven't heard of it. It's a member of the Brassica family. That's right, Kohlrabi, ladies and gentlemen. And they're like, Kohlrabi, no way. Yeah. You just hand it to them and you say, wow, this is really good. Look at this crazy little radish that my, you know, right. someone just made. Do you, you ever... Get the kids to participate in like a family meal. Is that well? A that's thing? the second way to make sure About that they're cooking. going to try the duck testicles or the sweetbreads. <laughs> if you say, "Hey, listen, let's cook together," and you actually give them jobs and they work on it as opposed to just watching right. you, right. they'll participate and they'll go all the way through it and all the steps. And by the end of the preparation time, mm-hmm. they have way too much invested to say, "I don't eat that," right? Because they they they're in it. They know it. Right. So that's the best way to get them involved. I mean, if they're just picky eaters, it'll phase and just keep eating and keep celebrating things. Right, right. Don't make it a big thing. But if you want to really get them in it, let them cook with you. And they'll. The weirdest thing when I was growing up, it wasn't weird because we loved it, but according to my neighbors, the weirdest thing about us uh-huh. was the fact that my grandma would come over probably every other Sunday, and one of the big dishes that she made was a calf's brain and Swiss chard ravioli served with an oxtail ragu, <laughs> which in the 21st century sounds absolutely normal and delicious. But back then in the 70s, it was, we were the weirdest people on the block. Until one of my friends finally tasted one of these raviolis by uh-huh. mistake or I don't know whatever happened. <laughs> right. And the word got around that they were actually delicious. And that's, you know, it's, it's a different way uh, how we look at things. And right. it's just interesting that people find things that used to provoke us and frighten us now provoke us and excite us. Right. So that's the whole idea behind gastromolecular or whatever they want to call it. It's right. all made of molecules and it's all gastronomy so right but changing things textures and changing the way that they look is now a, a fascinating process of food that people love to participate in because it provokes them in an intellectual way not only just a physical satisfaction way right and as far as as far as shopping for all of these ingredients do you are you a proponent of keeping it local and trying to or do you just kind of find the ingredients that you need I'm a big fan of keeping it local until about that third week in February when you're like <laughs> fuck this goddamn kohlrabi again no uh, pardon my French I don't know if I'm allowed to say um, I, yes as much as you can keep it local and as much as you can buy it from small farms as much as you can buy it organic there right. are times uh, I mean it's certainly easy to shop local from June to November right. in our small growing season. Right. But, you know, you got to think about at least staying within maybe a couple of states or even just taking it out to the entire hemisphere. Right. <laughs> and then you're understanding at least things that are seasonal. And I think, right. you know, one of the good things and one of the bad things about America is that you can get raspberries on Christmas Eve. Yeah. It's remarkable that we can make them happen. Yeah, it's insane. It's not good for you to eat them, and it's not good for you to think that you can get everything year-round. Right. It's Why? In- Is it actually bad for you? No, it doesn't hurt you at all. It just has, it has very little flavor right. and a little bit less, quite a bit less nutrition. So they just look like the fruit, but they... They look exactly like raspberries. But they're really missing... They're not really tasty raspberries. <laughs> they're not really delicious. And it's right. just like that with anything out of season. Right. And sometimes they'll bring things from the other hemisphere. 
Uh-huh. So, and, and, and that's maybe a, a bit tastier, but the kind of bad ideology that's implied by shipping things 5,000 miles or 2,000 miles or 1,000 yeah. miles is a little bit, it's a little risky if you can avoid it. I, right. I'm not saying that you have to be a purist all the time and you yeah. have to follow or march to the exact same drum every time. But if you can think about it in a way that it's fun and enjoyable and it, it makes you change the way you think about it and play with it, then right. it's a great experience. It's kind of insane how, how futuristic we've become like you actually have to learn when raspberries are, are in, in season, season right. to be you know what i mean and go into the supermarket right. i mean that, that is a late 20th century yeah. addition to the planet i mean yeah. up, up until then you could only have i mean just with freezing that changed a whole lot of right. things right. but the idea that we changed our agriculture and have really spent time elongating seasons right. is because americans thought they should have it yeah italians they are getting used to the idea that you right. can have raspberries, but they don't like the idea of having raspberries on Christmas Eve. No. Well, that's and I'm a- not a member of the anti-raspberry club. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> no, it's, the, it's, it's American-driven. I guess that's why we're number one. <laughs> well, we were uh, number one in the 20th century, <laughs> my friend. I'm not sure yeah. we're going to look back on the 21st and say, oh, we were number one. No, but we'll be like Italy. We'll be... A little we'll slower, just, but happier. Right. <laughs> I think, yes. Uh, Italy may be... It, it's either going to be Italy or Greece that will probably be the first one to experience violent revolution this summer. Right, yeah. But that's just probably part of Greece, the problem. But that's okay. Right. Let's, let's not talk about that. Okay. Um, what are they eating we, during a violent revolution? That's my question. Each other. Yes, exactly. Um, before, we, uh, before we go on and open it up to questions from all you guys, uh, there's also something really cool that's attached to this uh, book, which is your charity. Yes. So can you explain a little bit sure. how that all works? Uh, um, in the last 18 years living in New York, uh, the food and beverage professionals have been questioned and asked and delivered a lot of charitable contributions. And it's because they like the idea and it's nice to give to people that are either your customer base or people you feel are deserving that aren't your customer base. Um, about six years ago, I started to try to figure out how much it was that I was helping generate. and. Uh, about four years ago, it occurred to me that I'd, I had generated about $2.5 million worth of really good charitable contributions wow. by giving things at events or dinners or yeah. cookbooks or classes or all these things. But what I realized at that point is that I wasn't really focusing it. And although the idea of philanthropy, no matter what, is still a good idea, yeah. I hadn't really kind of brought it to something that might actually have a more long-lasting change idea. Right. So I thought, well, what is the most important thing to me? How are we figuring this out? What's going on in the world? And it occurred to me that I think that the most important thing is that every child born has an opportunity to become the greatest that they can. And that's not only because it just makes sense, right. but it's also because as adults right now, we are creating the most complicated and difficult to solve problems. We better come up with some smart kids or we're just going to leave a cinder here yeah. in two more generations. So the, my foundation was founded with the idea of creating perfect children or at least children achieving their best potential. Right. And that's uh, by children's hunger relief, children's disease research and literacy guarantee. Right. And this book, if you donate, if you look on the little blurb in the corner, you can donate. And we're still matching funds until when, Pam Louie? March 1? Yes, she's asleep. Murph, wake her up. <laughs> no? It's February what? 24th. That's the end of it? Oh, well, all right. We, still, we have one month we got left. another month. And we're matching funds up until $300,000. So it's a way to participate. Um, someone's clipping their hair in the background. <laughs> I also agreed to do something with food and wine uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, they have something called that we've uh, just unveiled called Chefs Make Change. And um, if they get to a half a million dollars by February 10th, I will remove this with scissors and let them do whatever they want to do with it. 
just because it might generate that kind of a, That's a buzz. Hilarious. But the idea is that philanthropy and helping other people, even people that you don't know, is a much better way to look at our lives than merely trying to figure out what we can get out of the system. That doesn't mean you should stop being smart or stop thinking about it, but what it does mean when I talk to people, particularly when they're just about finishing college, and they say, how am I going to go out in the world and make money? I said, the, probably the first thing you should do is go out the year after you graduate and go do something for someone else. And see how that feels first so that you understand what the nature of the best part of humanity is. Do that first, and then you'll probably find something in that time or at least start to think about things that will also make you feel good doing it. Not just this job or that job, but something that you have an emotional attachment to and something that you really do love. And when you do that, then you'll suddenly realize, kind of like me and kind of like you, Tom, when you go to work every day, you're never really at work. And as a matter of fact, I'm the kind of guy that at the end of the night, it's not like, oh, geez, I got to go home in a half hour. It's more like, shit, I should have gone home two hours ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's awesome. And one, more, one more thing I just want to point out. In the acknowledgments in your book, uh, I didn't, you, have, you said at uh, Del Posto you, want, you thanked two guys. One was named Osama bin Ladner. Osama bin Ladner. <laughs> is, is that uh, really his, his name? His name's Mark Ladner. Mark Ladner. And he's the chef, but I've known him for a long time, and I've always called him Osama. Osama. And it, it's, it's very that's, frightening to a lot of people. It's but good it, to hear. I was right. like, that is a really unfortunate it, name. No, no, it's really Mark Ladner. But Osama bin Ladner kind of makes sense. <laughs> and what about Quentin Bacon? Quentin Bacon's actually the name of the real photographer who took the pictures for this oh, book. Really? <laughs> is that a lot of people love his name. That's, yeah, I, for, if there's anybody that you are going to hire, it would be Quentin Bacon. Quentin Bacon, yes. <laughs> Quentin Bacon. Well, and Pamela Louie, of course. <laughs> Come on, Andrea Bernardi. Ben. All right, cool. Well, let's open it up to some questions to all you guys. Uh, anything you want to know about the book or check anything one. else? And uh, are we going to bring check, a mic around? Check, check. We have a microphone. All Just right. uh, raise your hand. We'll come by. First question right here in the second row. Do you have any famous steak dishes that you, you created? Um, in this particular book, there isn't a steak, but there is a prime rib recipe that is rubbed with porcini mushrooms that when you eat it tastes as good, if not better, than a steak. But in a lot of my cookbooks, there are steak recipes. Most of them are either T-bones, but I'm also a really big fan of skirt steak because it's inexpensive and it's perhaps the most delicious of all cuts of beef. You like the prime rib? All right, hold on. Let me make that order. Right. One prime rib, table seven. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, the, there's no cooks behind me. I'm just making it up. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. When you do go, when you do go into another book, and you you know, you've done a bunch of these now. Do you you have a period where you are experimenting or getting other people together and trying to come up with new ideas, or are you always experimenting? Then you get a bunch of it. Like I'll like I'll write material, and then once I have a whole bunch, then I'll release an album. Right. But if you do you do that way, I'm constantly you... working on it, and it's. Uh, I mean, we're always writing down the recipes, the things that I cook, you know, with the advent of the very easy and inexpensive iPhone camera opportunity. Right. You can even take pictures of the dishes and kind of keep them in a little, like a little diary that it's almost yeah. like writing a cookbook every day that I get up. Right. And then I figure out what I want to do. I think the next cookbook I'm going to write is probably a vegetable cookbook. Oh, Not yeah. necessarily vegan vegetarian, but there will be vegan vegetarian dishes in it. Yeah. I think that uh, meat should probably move just a little to the side right now and we should think uh -huh. about... Uh, sustainable agriculture, and also the deliciousness of the variety that happens with vegetables. Oh, interesting. Right over here Next to your question. left. Hi, Mario. I'm, my name is Pablo. Uh, by the way, I'm really inspired by what you said tonight. Like, I'm really, like, you're a great guy. Um, I, I, uh, Tell I, those TMZ guys out front. <laughs> no, 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 because I, I think it's great that you're actually thinking about, you know, being sustainable, uh, you know, getting your products locally. That's all, that's all really great stuff because people need that right now. You know, right. we need to go back to our farmers in this country. Um, 
my question for you is like I've been trying to cook with, cook with vegetables, and I'm trying to find out like if there's like a resource to figure out like which vegetables are freshest at a certain time because I find myself buying a lot of the same things over and over again. Right. Yeah. So like what like is there a resource for getting like the best vegetables at a certain well, time? Well, I mean there's or? cookbooks. I mean Alice Waters wrote a vegetable cookbook that put, kind of breaks it down into season and it's kind of interesting. But also you can go to the local stores and find out and talk to I mean I I think perhaps the most mystifying thing to me is as there are two kinds of shoppers in America and we very clearly address this at Italy at Italy. Um, there are people that really want to talk and really want to find out a lot of information and there are people that would rather not talk to anyone at all in the store. So you have to create kind of two categories. You can either go to the Salumerian, you can order things by the you know, ounce, quarter pound and talk to them about the you know, 57 different varieties of Pecorino that we have. Or you can go over to the pre-cut station and you just pick it up because you either know what you want or simply you just don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> what the, the, the resource there is that in the produce department at every grocery store of any merit, there's someone who who's either a manager or kind of Savian in charge. And talk to them and find out, like say, you know what I saw about this kohlrabi or I saw this about this crazy purple celery root or I heard about this interesting kind of hybrid squash and find out about it. And what they want to do is they want to find the things that you're going to buy. And if you're a regular customer, just like if you're a regular customer at a restaurant, you start to get not necessarily VIP treatment, but they start to heed your words. And if you say, listen, I want to buy duck eggs, can you get me duck eggs? They'll get you duck eggs. Right. And you say, listen, and I'll tell two of my friends, and we'll buy three or four dozen duck eggs every week. They'll bring it in. And if, if they see that you have an interest in particularly odd or seasonal vegetables or things that aren't on the regular rack at the Piggly Wiggly in you know, Decatur, Illinois, <laughs> then you're going to find something that might be a little bit more remarkable and yet is available all over. It just hasn't found its market in every place. Right. Keep going. Do you guys, do you guys sell the purple potatoes? Ruby potatoes? Yes. Purple. At, at Italy? Yes. They're there. Well, the nice thing about Italy, just for a plug, unabashed it. plug, do it. Is is if there's anything that intimidates you about cooking at Italy, we definitely try to remove it. And the best way that we can do that is the vegetable butcher. You can go in there, pick up six artichokes, and have no idea what to do with them. We will trim them, cut them, and prepare them for you other than cooking them, and just hand them to you. And if you brought the recipe in, we'll cut it exactly as they want. Nice. So it's kind of a cool idea that if you see something you don't recognize, you would go to the vegetable butcher and say, how do they do this? And they'll slice it, dice it, cut it, chop it, whatever. And I think that level of interaction is for half the people. Right. And, and in that way, people are starting to learn more about the vegetables and how they prepare them. And it's the same thing with the meat. I mean, we'll cut it meat any, other, any way you want. A lot of times you go to a grocery store and it's just this giant kind of gondola with stuff right. on plastic with an expiration date on it. And that's... An interesting way to shop, but it's better to go and talk to someone a little bit about it and find out, you know, where is this and why is it better. It is really true. Like when I went to Italy and uh, you go up to where the uh, they sell the prosciutto and all that stuff, and uh, it's so intimidating because you see meats from all around, and you, it's you know, and I always kind of go from the thing of well, I'll just pretend I know what I'm doing, and I'll be like, I'll have that, and then say it wrong, and, but but. Well, last time and I if was we're there. really smart, we won't correct you. Yes, <laughs> right. sir. The prosquito di purma. We'll bring you a quarter pound right now, sir. But the last time I was there, it was quiet. It was like on a Monday, like at 10, 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Best so time was, to shop there. It was in the great morning. because it wasn't so packed. And the guy there knew I didn't know what I was talking about, and I wasn't faking it. And he led me through. He started tasting and giving me, and it really was, I learned so much just from that one time that I can go back there, and now I won't be totally full of it. 
Right. But it is good to well, put no, it. Well, now you're even really more full of it because you're, <laughs> you're armed with information. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. A little bit. But also, it depends on where you're shopping, too. Like, if I go into Gristidi's or if he goes into Gristidi's and is like, you know, how about those duck eggs? You know, there's a good chance he'll just get punched. <laughs> <laughs> or you might find someone who says, you know what, we can't help you with duck eggs, but I know that just down the block at the green market at the Quattro stand on Wednesdays and Saturdays they have that. Now, that would be only if I was that guy. Right, exactly. I don't, think you've, been, I don't think you've been in Gristidi's in a while. I was that one. I was that one for Halloween candy. <laughs> yeah, they that, had a lot of great-looking stuff in there. <laughs> the worst thing that, or not the worst, the most frightening <laughs> thing for me yeah. was the sushi bar at the Gristidi. Oh, that's like at LaGuardia Airport. Well, it's, it's you know, <laughs> the CVS across the street on, yeah. on University, yeah. they're competing with them now. No. There is sushi at the CVS. No. Yes, sirree. Oh, my God. And, and those, are people, you can those get... are people that don't want to talk to anybody about food. Oh. And then you can get Pepto-Bismol while you're there. Right. We over here on your far left. Hi, Mario. Hi. Thank you so much for teaching me how to make cacio e pepe. I learned Beautiful. in the app. Um, but what I was curious, that? cacio e pepe, yeah. it's this amazing um, pasta dish. I'm a vegetarian, and many of the things that um, at Italy I can't eat, but cacio e pepe is amazing. It's, it's spaghetti from Rome. Right. Well, the, the dish is based in Rome, and it's in every trattoria in town and not at the fancy restaurants. And it's sheep's milk cheese, black pepper, and a little pasta water all tossed uh, together till it's a gossamer, shiny deliciousness. Wow. And the, most people make a mistake by putting the cheese in too early, and it clumps up. Uh-huh. But if you throw the cheese in off the heat with a little bit of the pasta water after you've melted the butter and the oil and already put in the black pepper, it becomes something that is divine. Yeah, <laughs> it, was the, it was the pasta water trick that I That's the whole game. Didn't know. That's when you fell in love. Yes. <laughs> well, I tried to recreate it at home and it, it didn't work. It can though. It can now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I was curious what your, aside from Italian food, what's your favorite type of cuisine or your t- favorite thing to make? Good favorite question. thing to make or favorite? Uh, okay. Maybe well, both. there's two, two questions there. Yeah. My favorite thing to eat is anything anyone else makes. <laughs> but the, I'm uh, very much tied to wherever I go. So when, uh, if I'm in Mexico for a couple of weeks, when I come back, I'm thinking I want to make really delicious Mexican food. Or if I'm in Southeast Asia or I'm in Texas or South Carolina, wherever I come back from, for the next two or three weeks at our house, we will be experimenting with a lot of those delicious flavors. And what I strive for is the authenticity and the simplicity of the ways that they make it in the, in the real places. So right now we're kind of on this post goop cleanse reawakening of our palates uh, and uh, we're eating a lot of very light vegetarian dishes that have uh, quite a bit of Indian flavors right now because I'm really although I haven't been to India I'm fascinated with the idea of the curries and the and the kind of way that they really coax out a lot of the flavor with slow cooking and make it really delicious but that said I like anything done well and when I go to restaurants, it's more important to me that the execution is right than, say, the lighting or even the service, for that matter. I'm much more of the food guy than I need the whole package. And if you go to some really great, simple restaurants in Chinatown, one of our national gifts here, like Ping Seafood, and all they do is get really simple, great live fish and just cook it with a, just a couple of seconds or until it's just cooked through or even slightly raw, I find that I'm more excited about that than a really long meal at a four-star restaurant. Front row over on your left. Hi, Mario. Uh, a big part of my childhood was uh, watching you on TV and watching my dad frustrated that he couldn't cook as good as you <laughs> as he was cooking in the kitchen. Um, just a kind of a silly question. Uh, when did you make the transition 
from uh, clogs to crocs? <laughs> was... Good question. Um, did your dad ask this question? <laughs> what is your dad um, wearing? <laughs> about this, the first year that crocs came out, I saw them in um, Aspen, which I believe they were first from Colorado. And uh, we were at the Aspen Food and Wine Festival, and the, the guide that was taking us trout fishing had them on, and they drained. And I was fascinated by the fact that he could wear shoes that didn't look like those silly gummies we used to have to wear on the beach when we were harvesting <laughs> yeah. oysters. And although some people don't think they're attractive, I think they're a thing of beauty. <laughs> and then uh, they kind of made a deal with me to help figure out how to market their stuff, and they almost went down the tubes. And then, I don't know if you saw it this week, but Crocs announced that they had a billion-dollar sales in 2011. Oh, so man. they seem to be doing something right. I take a beating in the fashion blogs from people <laughs> like Perez Hilton, who think I look like such an asshole wearing these shoes. And I'm just, I can only imagine that he is so tense because he's probably wearing tight shoes. <laughs> That's funny. But I think he's funny, too. I mean, I'm not dogging the guy. <laughs> Anyone else? Questions? Second row in your front. Oh, uh, hi, Mario. Hi. I watched the Chew today, so I saw Paula Dean on there. And I'm just curious to know, what are your thoughts about um, more so the sexism surrounding, or the possible sexism surrounding uh, uh, Paula Dean's announcement and ridicule on social media about um, the announcement around diabetes and the endorsement piece? Well, my take on it so far um, was not, it wasn't about her being a woman. I think it was more about her being relatively successful selling and purveying the ideology of kind of a certain abandon that we associate with the delicious cuisine of the South. And I think that the questions that everyone asked were more about why did she wait for three years after she was diagnosed. I don't think it was why as a woman did she wait. I think it was more why as a business person did she wait. And I think that she probably had to figure it out and figure out how she was going to deal with it and move forward with it. Diabetes, as she said, quite frankly, amongst the tears, is not a death sentence, but it is a wake-up call. And the type 2 diabetes is something you cannot cure, but you can certainly live with it and have a long and healthy life with it. Americans' understanding of what makes good food delicious and what makes delicious food good for you is something that's come a long ways in the last 40 years. And it's just... I think, you know, there's a lot of haters in the blogosphere, and I think she's a remarkable person, and I think she did a great job on the show, and uh, she's going to deal with uh, the repercussions. The haters on the blogs are going to go away in two weeks when they find someone else to hate, and it might very well be me that month. But that said, you've got to live with the ebb and the flow, baby, and she's going to be all right, and as long as she takes care of her health, which I think is the fundamental question, what is she really going to do about this, and is right. she going to modify her diet and make her life longer, to live with her family a lot longer, I think she's going to be all right. She's pretty cool. And we have time for two more questions. The first one is right here in the front row to your far left. Hey, Mario. Hey. Um, aside from, like, New York and Chicago, is there a particular city in the States that you think is really, like, either on the rise or shining for food and, and the restaurant scene at the moment? Many. Um, I, uh, speaking of the cooking of the South... I think Charleston, South Carolina is one of the most amazing places. Because for me, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a tradition. 
I'm looking for a history. I'm looking for something that tastes of the place. You know, Chicago's interesting, but most of its food is on the edge, you know, technically. And I think that's interesting, too, and I love to go to Chicago for that. But, I mean, there's nothing like New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans is pound for pound probably the best eaten town in the whole country. And then the Pacific Northwest, and that includes Vancouver and Seattle and Portland and, you know, all of that food for me. For me, what's really important when I go to travel is that I... I think what happened in the 70s and 80s is that the three-star Michelin specter kind of clouded everyone's vision by creating the idea that you should be able to eat luxurious ingredients at the fancy restaurants. And what that caused them to do is start serving foie gras, not only where foie gras comes from, but also in the Côte d'Azur, or also in any, any, three -star, any restaurant that wanted to be a three-star restaurant in the 70s and 80s, pretty much had to have foie gras, they pretty much had to have caviar, they had to have smoked salmon or some kind of Scottish salmon, and all of these luxury products that made sense, but what they really only did was guarantee that the super rich could eat the same thing when they traveled from place to place. What really speaks to me is if I'm in the southwest of France, I want to drink the Armagnac, but I also want to eat the oysters from the coast, and I want to eat the game birds that are from there. And when I'm in the center of... Cincinnati, I want to go to Skyline Chili because that's the local specialty. I want to find out what's going on, what people are excited about. Whether it's good or bad is less significant to me than it's unique in this area. So when I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I want to eat, I want to eat the oysters and the salmon from up there, and I want to drink the beer from the hops that were grown right there. For me, it's much more important to understand the geospecificity of a luxury that the luxury is, in fact, that I'm getting it right where it was grown. That drives me much more crazy than the technical capabilities of a four-star restaurant to take me to on a 15-course meal. I, and I, I don't mind them. I like those experiences as well. But I want those 15 courses to tell me where I am. And that's really what drives me nuts. So I think there's places in every state of this country that will drive me nuts, including the Jersey Shore. I mean, we can go to Manalapan and have a killer bluefish sandwich. And that, to me, is as exciting as the... Oysters and tapioca pearls at per se, which is also exciting. Did Last I answer question. or did I just that was make it worse? <laughs> Last question right here in the yes. front row. Hey, Mario, how are you? Hey, good. I'm Frank. Um, often when I'm in your restaurants, the music is fantastic and people are whipping out Shazam, myself included. So, and I know you're a big fan of music. How do you find that music and food intertwine and how far can it go? Um, I think it intertwines. I, I think the idea of operating a restaurant is to be able to define an experience that is curated. Uh, the worst thing that can happen to a restaurant is they read all of their comment cards by their guests and they try to answer every one. What's more significant to me, and I can say this because we're in New York, you couldn't do this in Tuscaloosa. You know, I mean, in Tuscaloosa, you open a restaurant, you pretty much have to make sure that almost everyone in town comes in. The beauty of New York is even if three million people hate you because Led Zeppelin played in the middle of their Bucatini, there are five million left. And I don't say that with the ideology that I want to insult any single one person. But what I want to impress on them is they're coming for a curated experience. And in the same sense that the sweetbreads are cooked to this exact crispness in our restaurants, we treat the lighting and the beverage program and the music and the comfort of the chair and the style of the service as one of the details that we can manipulate and manage in hopes of creating a joyous experience for the customer. So I think music works magnificently and it's very nice and delightful at least for the people of my generation where there wasn't much music or it was either jazz or some kind of classical interesting music 
where you can all of a sudden be sitting there and you're eating your saffron panna with grapefruit that Gina De Palma made and the cure comes on or PIL or Morchiba. And I mean, we play music to vary and if someone's really insulted by it and they say it in a nice way, we'll turn it down where they are. But we don't really take requests. And, and uh, what we really want them to understand is this is kind of our take on the experience and we'd love you to love it, and, but we're not gonna change it that much if you don't. We'll listen to you dutifully and responsibly if you're dissatisfied with the level of it. And if it's something we did wrong, we'll fix it or, or help you some way. But if it's like you don't like, if you want the lights turned up, would anybody ask anybody to turn the lights up or down in a restaurant unless it was really blasting? So it's just one of those things that we try to deal with. And I feel very strongly that you can have an exceptionally brilliant restaurant experience with no music at all. But if you're really listening to something that you also love, it's engaging you on yet another pleasure point, and it can make it really work. Whether it's right. Dave Brubeck or Ozzy Osbourne. Nice. All right, that's it. That's no more questions. All right, well, thank you all so much for coming. Hold on, hold on one more whoa, second. Whoa. Tom, what are you doing in the next month that we should follow you around? Come oh, on. Oh, that's so funny you bring that up. I have a new uh, Comedy Central special that just aired called Tom Papa Live in New York City. Thank you. And uh, it's available only on iTunes. And uh, it was... How serendipitous. Yeah, that's so weird that you asked that. But that's what I'm doing. And then I'm performing around New York for the rest of it. This guy's Thanks one of the funniest asking. dudes of all time. You've got to hang out with him. Thanks, dude. You're all the right. best. Thank you guys so much for coming. Another round of applause for Mario. Pick up the book. It's well worth it. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>